Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we get back into Romans, as we get back into this incredible letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome to encourage them to participate with him and taking the gospel to Spain to lay out so clearly what the gospel is and how we live in light of the gospel, how we live in response to it. We pray, Father, that as we look at this word together over the next several weeks, that we would, we would love your gospel rightly and that we would respond with joy and gratitude, that we would respond with thanksgiving, that we would live lives of worship that would be radically sold out because of the mercies of God that have been given to us that we would recognize that the only rational response to your mercy is a life of complete self-abandonment, total obedience, joyfully caught up together in the praise and worship of our God and Savior. Father, we pray that you would do that work in us, that you would help us to understand your word, that we would love it and rejoice in it, repent before it, and you would be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was a a youth pastor, which I was for several years, I, I occasionally got the charge that I was too extreme. I was told by parents that oftentimes, you know, these kids are just teenagers. The teenagers, don't be so extreme. You're calling them this kind of radical obedience, this kind of life-sacrificing pursuit of Christ. And don't you think that's a little too much for these teenagers? Don't you think it would be much better if you just kind of had fun with them? Enjoy life. Tell them about Christianity. That's great. But, but don't get them so focused on abandoning all of life for the gospel. That's just too much. It's too extreme. So when I tell you that God commands us in Romans 12 to live in total obedience, this would be my response, to live in total obedience, that our lives would be characterized by complete and joyful giving of ourselves to God. They thought to myself that sounded like themselves that that sounded like a standard that was unreasonable. At least that's what they told me. That seems over the top. But yet, Scripture tells us very clearly that that is, in fact, the rational response to God's mercy. Jesus. When he says to you that happiness, your personal, worldly, day-to-day -day happiness, not just your eternal happiness, but even your happiness now, is not found in pride or power or popularity or possessions. It's not found in any of those things. Rather, what he says is, blessed, that Greek word makarios, happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Blessed or happy are the meek. Blessed or happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed or happy are the merciful. Blessed or happy are the pure in heart. Happy are the peacemakers. Blessed or happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed or happy are you 
when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You might think to yourself when you read those Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus certainly has lofty ideals, but they seem irrational in their extremity. When the Apostle Paul says in Acts 20, 24 to the Ephesian elders, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. Now listen to, what he said, listen to what he's describing about his life. I will endure beatings, cold nights, hunger, thirst, danger, mocking, and even death if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace. We hear that, we might be tempted to think, that's fine for you, Paul, but that's a little unrealistic for the average Christian. Jim Elliott, um, many of you have probably heard of him. He was a missionary who went to the Aka Indian tribe in Ecuador and was actually killed for taking the gospel to them. Several other missionaries were killed along with him. They were actually speared to death when they landed to try to take the gospel to them. Incidentally, after they were speared to death, their wives then moved into the tribe that killed their husbands and shared the gospel and planted a church there among these Indians. When Jim Elliott was reflecting on why he was gonna give up all the promise that America offered to him in order to go risk his life for the gospel, in reflecting on that, he wrote in his journal this, this phrase which has become somewhat famous in Christianity, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. When we hear that, we might be tempted to think that seems like an almost young and foolish idealism. When you contemplate the Christian life, when you contemplate that the Christian life is one of self-abandonment, total, joyful obedience to God, entirely focused on God and others, utterly sold out for the gospel of grace, we might wonder what in the world drove Paul to live that kind of life? What drove Jim Elliott to live that kind of life? What would drive us to live that sort of life? And, and the simple answer is gratitude for grace. Hear that? Gratitude for grace. It's driven by a deep and constant gratitude for the grace of God. That's what it's driven by. Did you guys know that, by the way, the word gratitude and the word grace have the same Greek root? They come from the same Greek word. Speaking about this, uh, a professor at Biola, his name is Fred Sanders, he actually wrote the following when something is gratuitous, i.e. gracious, and given to us gratis or for free, the appropriate response is gratitude or gratefulness. Grace calls forth gratitude, and we answer with what? Thank you. Thank you. Paul understands that grace, that the free gift of God's mercy in Christ, drives a life of holiness. The biblical pursuit of holiness is driven by or motivated by, encouraged by gratitude for grace and not fear of losing God's favor. His favor has already been given to you freely. 
That's why Paul, Paul's writings, by the way, most of his books, if you read Paul's letters, most of his letters, the first few chapters, he spends, he spends a time in the Greek form, the verb form we call indicative. What does that mean? Indicative is a statement of reality. In other words, what Paul spends the first few chapters of every one of his letters talking about is the indicatives of grace. Here's what's true of you because of what Jesus has done. Jesus has poured out his life for you. Jesus has died for you. God has been gracious to you through faith. You're his. You've been adopted. You're owned by him, bought with the price. And then he always has this turn. Therefore, now go and do these things. It's indicative and then imperative. It's a statement of reality and then commands. He always seems to break his letters up like this, save Galatians. Seems to start off saying, here are all the realities. Now, here are all the commands. Here's what God has graciously done for you. Now, here's how you respond with gratitude. He does that in Romans, in fact, for 11 chapters. 11 chapters, Paul lays out the grace of God. That's why his chapter starts. If you look at chapter 12, he says this phrase, I appeal to you. Therefore, and I know you've heard me say this a million times, you've got to ask the question when you see a therefore, what's it there for? Why does he say therefore? He is pointing us back to something. Therefore, look what he says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. Paul is now applying his theology of the gospel to our daily lives. So what's the gospel? Turn to Romans chapter 1. This is what Paul is applying. He's applying 11 chapters to our lives. This, therefore, by the mercies of God, is a statement that summarizes 11 chapters. 11. Therefore, by the mercies of God, now do this. Therefore, by the mercies of God, is a summary statement of the past 11 chapters. And what do those 11 chapters say? Paul starts off addressing the church at Rome, telling them he wants to come and talk with them, And then he says, I want to preach the gospel among you also, but I also want to preach it in Spain. And he says, I'm a bond slave to you. I need to tell you about the gospel. I owe you an explanation because we share a common plight. We were both condemned for our sin, and we share that common plight, and therefore I've been saved by grace. I owe it to you to tell you about it. And then in verse 16, he makes this statement, for I am not, for I am not ashamed in other words, in, in Greek, that's a litotis, which is a, it's like an English, we, we say it in English too, in Greek they do it. It's, it's a way to say, I'm proud. Somebody asks you, how are you doing? You say, not bad. You mean good, right? When you say it like that, with that kind of emphasis. What Paul is saying is, I'm not ashamed, I am proud. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why am I not ashamed? Why am I proud of the gospel? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And why is it the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek? Right? Why? Because for in it, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God, of God is revealed. Not the righteousness of God where you see that he's holy and therefore you're condemned, but in the gospel, the righteousness of God is given to you. The righteousness of God is revealed. For as it is written... What's revealed, 
from faith to faith. For as it is written, the just, the righteous shall live by faith. Why do we need it? Why do we need it? See, this is what Paul is saying. Here's my theme for this letter. I want you to know that the gospel is what saves you. The gospel is what saves you. And so I'm proud of it, and I want to preach it to you. And why does it save you? Because it's in the gospel that you receive the righteousness of God. Apart from anything you've done, it's a gift. It's a free gift given to you. Why do you need that? Now Paul's going to lay out an explanation of verses 16 and 17. And he's going to lay it out basically for almost 11 chapters. And he starts off with verse 18. And he's, why do you need the rights of God? Verse 18, for the wrath of God, the wrath of God is being revealed currently against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, they hold it down. For what can be known about God, look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. In other words, what Paul says is, the reason I need to preach the gospel to you is because I need to tell you that we are all under God's wrath which is currently being revealed. And in this chapter, he tells us it's being currently revealed in that we've been turned over to sin. We've been turned over to sin. We've been turned over, three times he says that. God has turned you over. It's currently being revealed right now, but it will ultimately be revealed on that great day when Jesus Christ returns. And we will all be under condemnation. And why will we be under condemnation? Because we have suppressed the truth. We have put ourselves above the truth and held the truth down. And what's the truth? The truth is that God has made himself plain to us. He's made himself known in creation. And we have rejected him. We have pushed that truth down. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, and claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to this honoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You hear the problem? That's us. We have all universally turned against God. God has made clear to all of us that he is the creator, that he is to be eternally praised. That is something every man, woman, and child in the face of this, face of this earth knows. But we all press it down. We all suppress it. And so we are all without excuse. He goes on in chapter 3, Paul does chapter 2 and chapter 3. He continues to lay out. He even tells the, the Jews specifically in chapter 2 that you've rejected the gospel too. Even though God has made himself even clearer to you, you've still rejected him. Chapter 3 sums it up in verse 9 and says this, speaking of Jews or Gentiles, what then? Are we Jews any better off? I mean, we've been told all of this. Are we any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, 
As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Go down to verse 19 of chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. In other words, the law speaks to all those under the law, which is all of us. And it says to us, here is God's holy standard. And when you stand before him, when you stand before him and you see him in all his holiness, your mouth will be shut. You won't stand there and go, well, I don't know if it was all clear enough, God. I don't think it's all my fault. You put that jerk in my life who, I didn't really like that guy and he sort of messed things up for me and, and so it's, it's really not my fault. It's not what's gonna happen. You're gonna stand before a holy God and he's gonna say, I made it plain to you. I wrote my law in your heart. And your conscience, chapter two says, your conscience even bore witness to that. And you will see him and your mouth will be closed. As will the mouths of everyone be closed. And in verse 20, it goes on and says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified, declared righteous, forgiven in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So Paul lays out very clearly that we are under condemnation. God has created us, we've rejected him, and we're under condemnation. He tells us the problem. Here's the problem. Here's why I want to preach the gospel to you in Rome, and here's why I want to go to Spain and preach it to those people, and here's why, according to chapter 15, he says, I want to preach the gospel where Christ has never been named. Why? Because we have this problem. We have universally, all of us, Denied God, and we're under his condemnation. And then he says, but here comes the gospel, verse 21 of chapter three, but now, but now, the righteousness of God has been revealed apart, what it says, or manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, what he says is, the Old Testament law and prophets tell us the righteousness of God is coming, they bear witness to it, but it's been manifested apart from the law. You don't get to this righteousness through the law. You get to it through Christ. He goes on and explains that. Look what he says in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, again making the universal declaration of our condemnation. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And anybody who's justified, right, is justified, forgiven, declared righteous by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfaction of God's wrath. Jesus went to the cross and satisfied God's wrath against us by his blood to be received by faith. Hear what Paul's doing here? He's telling you what the hope is. Yes, you're under condemnation. Yes, we've universally denied him. But it's also true that God sent his son who paid the price for us, who satisfied all that wrath due against us. That is good news. He wants you to know that is sheer grace and mercy, and it's the best possible news you can hear. He goes on in chapter 4, verse 5, he's speaking quite a bit here, and in chapter 4, verse 5, he starts to sum it up a bit, and he says this, 
and to the one who does not work. In other words, to the one who's not trying to earn salvation through goodness, through his own good works. You guys have heard this kind of discussion before. How many people do you talk to who when they say, you know, yeah, I know I'm going to be in heaven, or I know so-and-so is in heaven. You know why? Because they're a good person. Because their good works outweigh their bad. If you're hoping in your good works, if you're hoping that you're going to stand before God because of something good you have done, because you think that somehow you're a good person, you need to know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You need to know that when you stand before him, your mouth will be shut. You need to know that you're under his condemnation because you're a sinner. That's what Paul's saying. You're a sinner. And if you are trying to work, if you're trying to work for God's approval, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get it. He says, for, and to the one who does not work, does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Here's what I love about this particular scripture. People ask me all the time, well, how do I know I'm worthy? I mean, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I probably deserve condemnation. They don't want to commit totally to it. But I know that I probably deserve it. All right? But how do I know I'm qualified? I can't come to church right now. I can't go hear the gospel. I can't give my life to Jesus. I'm not worthy of all that. I need to wait until I get my life together. You guys ever heard that? Once I get, or thought it, once I get my life together, once I have it all together, then, then I'll pursue Jesus. Then I'll look to him. Then I'll trust in him. Once I get my life together. That is not the qualification for salvation. The qualification is not once you get your life together. Not once you start working at it in some positive way. The qualification is that God justifies the ungodly. If you're in that category, you qualify. Hear that? What do you bring to your salvation? You bring your ungodliness. You look to Jesus. He brings everything you need. He brings it all. Paul lays this out that it's only through faith in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, he gives us a summary in verse 1. Therefore, therefore, chapter 5 is one of these great summary statements. Therefore, since we've been justified, declared righteous, forgiven by faith, what is faith? By looking to Jesus, by recognizing he's our hope, and we're not. That's it. Faith is not something you gin up. It's not something you somehow accumulate enough of. It's not itself a virtue that is rewarded. Because it, God doesn't look at it and go, wow, you have a lot of faith. I'm going to reward that. Like that's some kind of virtue. Faith is simply looking to Christ. What is rewarded is Jesus, not your faith. You're looking to him. He, the object of your faith, is why you're declared righteous. Not some kind of quality that you think of your faith as virtuous. It's Jesus. So he goes, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, we've been reconciled to him. We were once his enemies, now we're his friends. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Hear that? We can access the throne room of God in prayer. And in the ultimate sense, and we rejoice 
in hope of the glory of God. We have the certainty of his glory. He lays that out in chapter five. Then he lays out how this all happens because we've been united to Christ through faith. That God has demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he goes on to say, you wonder how secure your salvation is? You wonder how secure that justification in Christ is? He says this, since therefore, verse nine of chapter five, we've been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, hear this, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In other words, Paul's making an argument from the greater to the lesser in this sense. It is an incredible feat for God to save us while we're his enemies, to reconcile us, to call his enemies friends. How much more, how much easier, how much less of a feat is it for him now to save to the uttermost those who are his friends? If he would do this while you're his enemy, what will he do for you now that you're his friend? He certainly won't reject you when you sin. It's all found in Christ, and Paul grounds that in chapter 5. And then people say, well, if grace is this great, if every time I sin, grace abounds all the more, if it's superabounding, and God is that gracious to save me to the uttermost, then should I go on sinning so that grace may abound? And Paul says, may it never be. Do you not know that you have been buried with Christ through baptism and raised to new life with him? In other words, what Paul says is, you misunderstand grace. Grace is not something from which God just came and removed the penalty for your sin from you. He also freed you from slavery to your sin. God's power has overcome the power of sin in your life. Not only has the penalty been paid for, the power of sin has been broken. And so you're a new creation in Christ. You're not going to want to live for sinfulness. You're going to want to live for him. He goes on and answers objections with regard to that in chapter 7 with what was the law. And then in chapter 8, he gives this glorious statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. You want to know how much condemnation there is for you if you're in Christ? There's none. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He wants you to know you're so Utterly secure that at the end, if you look at verse 31, the way he ends this passage, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, if you are in Christ, God is for you. Hear that? He isn't up there as this angry dad shaking his fist at you. He isn't up there as this angry God saying, you know what, I don't want to have anything to do with you. You're kind of in a neutral state. You were in condemnation. Now you've been to neut- moved to neutrality. And every time you mess up, I'm moving you back into condemnation. That isn't how God works. When God saves you in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, you have been moved from condemnation, from enemy, to the position of his son. You are adopted as his children. He's for you. He was against you, and now he's for you. And if God is for us, who can be against us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Jesus is at God's right hand telling the Father, keep them. Do you think the Father is going to fail to answer his prayer? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, anything else in all creation, that includes you, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear that promise? You hear what Paul's talking about here? We have been condemned because of our sin, enemies of God, because we denied him. But in Christ, through faith, through looking to him, knowing him is our only hope, we are utterly secure. We're his friends. We're his children. We are saved to the uttermost. His love can never be separated from us. That's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. And all you have to do to qualify for the grace of God is know you're ungodly and look to Jesus. That's it. Look to him. That's what Paul says. And you get all this. And then he goes on, he says, this mercy is sovereign. In chapters 9 through 11, he lays out the sovereignty of God's mercy. If you look at nine, verse 5, chapter 9, verse 15, he says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. No one can stop God's hand from having mercy on whom he wants to. And in verse 18 of chapter 9, So then, He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God has mercy on whom he wants. Verse 23 of chapter 9. Why did he allow all of this to happen where some people are going to end up in condemnation? Why did he create people who he knew were going to be damned eternally? Why? And why is he then bore with us in patience so that he can save his people? Listen, verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. There's mercy, mercy, mercy. Look at chapter 11, verse 30. Just, chapter 11, verse 30. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, he's talking to the Gentiles about the Jews. You were disobedient. But you've received mercy because of their disobedience, the Jews. He says, just as that's happened, you've received mercy. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. God wants to have mercy on people from every tribe and tongue and nation. He wants to be merciful. And Paul ends this whole section of this letter This whole section talking about the grace and mercy of the gospel with, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. To which all God's people said, amen. And Paul turned and said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Hear that? By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What Paul does is he's appealing to us by the mercies of God to do what? He's appealing to us to live a life of gratitude which is really the essence of worship. I I don't know if you just heard what I said. Gratitude is the essence of worship. Look at the way Paul concludes the first verse. Give your whole life, look what he says. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. When he says, give up your whole life, that's what he means by those offering your bodies. Give up your whole life, body, soul, and mind. This is your spiritual worship. That Greek word there is the word from which we get the word logic. For spiritual, the word worship there is the idea of serving or worship that we saw in chapter 1. They did not worship God. They did not give thanks to God. And he says, you want to know what you do in response to this mercy? You offer your body. You offer your whole person as a sacrifice to him. All of it. You don't hold anything back. Every part of you, every member, you do not give any of your members over to unrighteousness. You give them all to God. That is logical response. Do you hear that? You want to know what the logical, rational response reasonable response to the mercy of God is complete offering of yourself to him. That's what he's saying. That's why Jim Elliot can say he is no fool. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. What is foolish, what is foolish is to think that the response to God's mercy is something less than a complete sacrifice your whole life. That's foolish. That's irrational. The irrational ones are those of us, the unreasonable ones, the illogical ones are those of us who think that the right response, the logical response to the mercy of God is something less than the entire sacrifice of our whole lives to him in worship and gratitude. He's making his appeal both with regard to our bodies and our minds. If you look there, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And he means your whole person, but he doesn't want to exclude your physicality. And then in verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He wants to address both. He wants to address both our minds and our bodies. And he wants us to know that the basic response of the human to this kind of grace and mercy is gratitude. Your whole life gratuitously given back to God because you're thankful 
for what he's done. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. Does this not solve the problem? Chapter 1. Well, I'm sorry, I won't start in verse 18. We'll start in verse 21. Chapter 1, verse 21. For although, although they knew God, listen to our problem. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Why does Paul throw in that phrase, or give thanks? Because gratitude is the response of those who recognize that what they have is all a gift. That's why. That God freely and gratuitously blesses us with life and breath and everything else. That he, that, that we are, in a sense, contingent, dependent, and unnecessary beings. The fact that God created us and is gracious to us is completely free on his part. And when we understand that, we give thanks to it. That deserves thanks. What is said when someone offers you a generous gift? You ever have somebody give you a generous gift? And somebody offers you a generous gift, or if you've ever given someone a generous gift, you know what's often said is, you know, thank you. You didn't have to do this. Precisely. They didn't have to do it. It's a gift. And they deserve thanks for that gift. God didn't have to create everything. He didn't have to create humans that he would allow to share his glory. He didn't have to do any of that. He certainly didn't have to then save us once we denied him. He didn't have to give us all these great gifts only to find us looking around for what we think he hasn't given us. You see, a lack of thanks is a lack of worship because it fails to recognize the freedom and non-obligatory nature of what God has done for us. And it seems to declare that God's gifts are not enough. It's what Satan tempted Adam and Eve with in the garden, isn't it? He came to them and he says to them, did God tell you you can't eat any of the fruit from those trees in the garden? And they said, oh, no, no, only the one. And he said, but look how good that fruit is. Where's Satan's emphasis? Look at the one thing he didn't give you. Right? There's something he didn't give you. And what did Adam and Eve do? They turn from the incredible graciousness of God all around them, and they complain and long after the one thing God didn't give them. And they sin. You know, you, you know what this looks like if you have children. Or if you're around children at Christmas time. And they're given gifts. You can see how ugly this picture looks, can't you? Your children are opening their gifts that family and friends have given them. Have bought them. And to your horror, they sort of discard one of those gifts. And they don't give thanks for it. And they even start to say things like, Well, I wish I wouldn't have gotten this. I wish I'd have gotten this instead. And you're just like, I'm humiliated. And then you're angry for all the wrong reasons, not because you want your child to be reconciled to God and have a right attitude, because, because you're embarrassed that they think, what a crummy parent you are, and that's a whole other side topic. But the point is, your kid is completely ungrateful, and you see the ugliness of it, and you think, you spoiled little brat. Think about how ugly that looks, and that's essentially our state with God. 
Paul is saying that men suppress the truth and unrighteousness and ungodliness. Rather than worshiping God and give thanks, they denied him and didn't give thanks. Or they exchanged God for a false idol that they gave thanks and worship to instead. So let me sum up biblical worship, atheism, and idolatry for you all like this. Biblical worship is gratitude to God. Atheism is ingratitude to God. Idolatry is misplaced gratitude. I'm placing my gratitude on the creature or the gift rather than the creator or the giver. Simply what it is. So what's the proper response to all that God has done? Gratitude or worship. And what Paul's gonna say here, gonna go on to what I'll get to next week and I thought I was gonna get to today because I have half the sermon left. I'm not gonna preach at all. What he goes on to say is that gratitude or true worship has a dual expression in our lives. It's an offering of our body and our minds to God. It's a giving of your life to the expression of gratitude that is the rational response to mercy. Do you hear that? I I want us to get a hold of this, Christians. Mercy's rational response is gratitude. Complete, self-abandoning thankfulness. And nothing less. Anything less is irrational and foolish. So it's true what Jimmy Elliot said. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you for the fact that you, that you have saved us through your gospel. You have done this great work, work that we, we don't deserve. You created us. We didn't even deserve that. And yet we denied you and sinned against you, and you saved us freely in Christ, for which we are incredibly thankful. We pray, Father, that we would understand your great mercy and that we would respond to Paul's appeal, that we would offer our bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God, that we would understand that this is the rational response. This is our reasonable service. This is worship. That always to grace we would respond with gratitude because that's appropriate, that's reasonable. Anything else is foolishness. Father, make us a people who are wise, who wisely respond to grace with thanksgiving. And that thanksgiving bursts forth in every part of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.